Okay, so we're in the book of Leviticus, and remember we said that Leviticus was the moment when God stepped down and gave his culture to his people. So he goes to the Israelites who were kind of a wandering people, wondering who God is. And he says, this is what it means to follow me. This is my character. I'm giving it to you. And, and we learn about that. But more importantly, Leviticus, even though it was written centuries before the time of Jesus, Leviticus points to Jesus. And it tells us, as we try to follow Jesus, more about what that really means. So we're going to look at, at the second chapter today. We're working our way through the offerings. <clears throat> I joke about my wife losing her voice, but I'm not far behind her. A um, couple of ground rules. Leviticus is filled with a lot of rituals and symbols. And when we talk, with, when we talk about rituals, when we talk through rituals, sometimes it's easy to get kind of lost in the ritual, and it begins to feel dry and stale. But it's important to remember that when it comes to God's rituals, there are two main purposes. The first is for us to do things over and over again so that it becomes second nature. So he came to the Israelites and he said, here are some habits that I want you to just start repeating so that it's second nature to you. In other words, you know, back when I was in high school and working with a golf pro, I would swing hundreds of times, thousands of times in my backyard and practice things like, you know, turning my wrist over and things like that so that when I'm out there on the golf course, it's second nature. You know, we all do that with different kinds of things in in athletics or, or, you know, whatever. Then the other thing with rituals in the Old Testament was that so that one day when Jesus would come, there would be a better frame of reference for his radical teachings, his radical way of life. So these rituals are going on for centuries. Then Jesus comes, and all of a sudden it makes a little more sense because that type of behavior had been started already. So in the movie Hoosiers, when Gene Hackman's the coach, and they have their first few practices, what aren't they allowed to practice with first few practices? Movie Hoosiers, anybody? The ball. And he's just running these drills, but there's no ball at the practice. And the idea is, then when he introduces the ball, they already have the right skills and know what to do with that. So we see some rituals in the Old Testament that may not make a lot of sense until Jesus comes. And then once he's here with his teaching, we know better what to do with that. All right, I'm going to start. Remember last week we talked about the burnt offering. We're in the section of Leviticus, the first few chapters, that talks all about the offerings. But before we get to the grain offering today, and I have two goals with the grain offering. One is that we see a better picture of God's generosity and the generosity he wants his followers to have. Second is, this gets abused a lot. We see pastors with $200,000, $300,000 luxury cars. I've heard of churches not offering families proper burials because they haven't given enough. My grandparents were mailed a letter after they gave their membership to a church. Uh, and the letter said, we, we demand our members sign over portions of their estates to the church. So sometimes this gets abused. And I want you to have a background in Scripture so you can kind of evaluate the daytime televangelist who wants you to sow seed into his or her ministry. And, and you'll have some Scripture to, to kind of weigh out whether or not it's legit and lines up with with God's word or whether it's just their own get-rich agenda. 
But that's, that's kind of the essence of the grain offering is, is God's generosity. Before we get there, I want to start in the book of Exodus to kind of build up to the grain offering. So the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books are called the Pentateuch. And they're, some, they're, they're for the most part chronological, and they just lay a history of early uh, Jewish life. And so in Genesis, we see the creation of the world. We see God scattering the nations, sin entering the world, people getting far from God. But God goes to a man named Jacob. He says, you're going to be the official father of the nations. Changes his name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And they understand that they are God's chosen people. But by the end of Genesis, the Israelites, God's chosen people, find themselves in slavery for centuries. They're in slavery in Egypt. They don't have scripture that we know of. They just have these traditions. They know that there was this ancestor, you know, hundreds of years ago that God supposedly claimed as the chosen people, but now they're in slavery in Egypt. Probably I'm in a tough time, you know, understanding how that could possibly be. Then Moses comes with the power of God, and God is raining down these apocalyptic and cataclysmic and catastrophic uh, signs and plagues and things, forcing Pharaoh to say, get these people out of here. So the Israelites go, Moses leads them, God shows the Israelites that Moses is a spokesman, they're out in the wilderness, they're wandering toward the promised land, they're wondering who is this God that just put this shock and awe display on, and what does it mean to follow him? And Moses begins in Exodus chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments to give his culture to the Israelites. And then we see God saying, here are the Ten Commandments and here is the the, the temple, here's the, the holy place that I want you to build, the tabernacle. After that we get to Leviticus or we get to um, Exodus 23. Moses says this, Again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles and, and a pen and notepad and whatever and moving through a lot of stuff quickly here. Um, three times a year, so they're learning God's culture. Three times a year, this is verse 14, you are to celebrate a festival to me. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread for seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. So that's a remembrance of, of the exodus from Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Celebrate the feast of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow. So that's the second festival, feast of harvest. First fruits of the crops that you sow in your field. Then celebrate the feast of ingathering. At the end of the year, when you gather in your crops from the field, So three times a year, all the men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offering must not be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord. So here's what we have going on. Moses sets up three festivals. God sets up three festivals through Moses. And, and it's the unleavened bread, but then there's the harvest and the ingathering. So twice a year, based on the particular kind of crop, you are harvesting your crop, 
you're looking at the spread and you're saying, here is the choicest, here is the best. As near as we can guess elsewhere in Scripture, it was about 10%. And you're taking this tithe, this 10%, your best 10%, and you're giving it back to God twice a year. So everything you make, essentially, is represented at those two times a year. So you're essentially giving the best 10% of everything back to God. Now, that sounds steep. But when you think about the situation that the Israelites were in at the time, uh, it makes a little more sense. So let's just pretend today that you all have grown up, and you've got to picture this in your mind, you have grown up in a refugee camp, you and your family. You've known nothing but tents and steel cages. That's where you've lived your whole life. In relative poverty, your basic needs are met, and you have no freedom, and, and all of a sudden you get put on a bus, and you come here into this cinema, and I get up on stage and I tell you, okay, everybody, you are now free. I have purchased your freedom. I have bought you all houses, given you all cars, and I have jobs for all of you. You are free to move about the country. The only thing I ask is that you come to me and give me 10% of your income so you don't forget who it was that bought your freedom. Now, while 10% might be steep in that kind of a context, you're so thrilled to have your freedom. You know, who cares? I'll give this guy 10%. I get to keep 90%. I got a house. I got a car. I got a job. I'm taken care of. You know, so so it, while steep, it's understandable in that context so that wouldn't have been a big deal to these people. And, um, and, and the reason that, that, that it seems God does this is because God has no problems telling his people that he is jealous. He says, I am a jealous God. He wants their attention. He wants their life. He wants their relationship. And he's driving the nations that are inhabiting Palestine, the promised land, out. So there are these empty houses and empty fields. And the Israelites are going to get to go in get their house, get their fields, and it's only going to be a generation or two of passing these things on that families have forgotten where they got it from. But by setting up this system of going to God and giving Him resources, you're always reminding yourselves where you get your stuff from. So that's what we get, and that's called first fruits. And the reason that's important is because it's going to come to play in the book of Leviticus. So first fruits were the tw- two times a year that you would go with your whole income or with with one-tenth or so of your whole income and give that to God. That was first fruits. It was the ingathering and the harvest. Let's move on to Leviticus chapter 2. Remember last week we had the first of the offering rituals being the burn offering. And the idea there was you're in a regular habit of, um, of going to the altar sacrificing an animal was understood that your sin transferred to that animal so that you were completely forgiven. God wanted you in in this rhythm of taking your mess to God and having him forgive you and restore you. That was a rhythm that God wanted so that we all understood that no matter what we did, God was ready to forgive us. Incidentally, if you want a Bible, there are some sitting back there in each side of the the cinema if you're interested in that. Okay, now we're in Leviticus chapter 2. We had the burnt offering, now we're going to get to the grain offering. 
<clears throat> when someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be of fine flour. He is to pour oil on it and put incense on it and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Remember that from last week. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offering made to the Lord by fire. So what we get here is, let me just review the basics of this offering. So a grain offering is when, in addition to the first fruits, you just want to offer something to God. And so you take your flour and you mix it with oil and incense and you take it to the temple and you say, this is my grain offering. And the priest then, whose entire job it is, I mean, that's all they do, that's all they were allowed to do, and it was based on their heritage. They were, they were descendants of Aaron, so they, they essentially worked and lived most of their life at the temple. They couldn't do other things to make money. So you go and you take your offering to the priests, and they are going to divide it up into a memorial portion and a most holy portion. And the memorial portion they take and they burn at the altar. And it's called a memorial portion because very central to worship in the Old Testament was the idea of covenant. The Israelites had a covenant with God. He would be their God and would meet their needs and they would be His people. They would remember and follow all of His ways. So you're saying, you know, remember the jealousy of God. He wants a relationship. You're saying, you are my one and only God and you take care of us and we worship you. We will worship no one else. That's the covenant. And, and it was a memorial portion because as you were taking God, uh, your possessions there, and, and the memorial portion was going to on the altar and being burned that put off this fragrance that went up to God. And as you smelled that and knew that God was smelling that, you were both remembering memorial, your covenant. So you're going regularly and saying, here, I'm giving you something. We are remembering the covenant that we made together. Then the most holy part, the other part, the priests kept for their own you know, food and things uh, while they did their job on site at the temple. Now, the one other thing that I would mention here is is we, we get a, we, we're starting to get a picture for the generosity that God demanded of His people. Because right from the get-go, God says immediately, bring me a tenth, your best. Your best 10% you bring me. And then He gives them these offerings. So in addition to the first fruits, you're taking these goats and sheep in for sacrifice, and you're taking flour in for sacrifice. <clears throat> but in addition to that, in Leviticus chapter 19, God tells the Israelites, Do not harvest the perimeters of your fields. Don't touch those. Plant them. Don't harvest them. Because that's where the poor will know they can go and eat. So there's this extreme generosity that God is setting up. And, and scholars think it would have been between 20 and 30% between the first fruits, the offerings, and the, the, the margins of the fields, probably 20 to 30% God is saying, that doesn't belong to you. 
Even though you did the work, that doesn't belong to you. So we see this extreme kind of generosity that God is setting up. On to verse 4. If you bring a grain offering baked in the oven, so you could bring flour or you could bring a bread cake, it is to consist of fine flour, cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of fine flour mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it or break it, same word there, break it and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it is to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who will take it to the altar. He'll take out the memorial portion of the grain offering. Burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offering made to the Lord by fire. So what's happening here is you kind of get lost in the repetitive language. All he's doing is saying, depending on what pots and pans you have in the house, you're going to be bringing different kinds of bread cakes in to, to, for the grain offering. And he's making sure that everybody knows what to do there. And essentially, you have this bread made without yeast, this flat wafer, and you break it. And it goes on to the altar as a memorial portion, remembering the covenant between God and people. Fast forward centuries to the upper room on Jesus last night with his disciples. He has a bread cake. And the Bible says, he says, this is my body. And he broke it. Remember me. This broken bread is my body. So we see that even centuries before the life of Jesus, God is showing us what will come one day. That just like we are offering a sacrifice of our own goods to remember the covenant, Jesus said, I am now offering a sacrifice for the covenant. All right, let's move on. Verse 11, every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast. For you are not to burn any yeast or honey in an offering made to the Lord by fire. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. So first fruits you brought the whole thing in and they stayed in. Offering on the altar was different. That was the memorial thing unrelated to first fruits. So you could bring honey, you could bring yeast at first fruits, but it could never be burned on the altar as a memorial. We'll talk about that in a minute. Season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of the grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Now this is interesting here because we get some different... We get um, yeast... Honey and salt. They had to bring salt. It had to be there. They couldn't bring yeast. They couldn't bring honey. They couldn't burn those things on the altar. Let's talk about that for a minute. Now, honey uh, carries with it the idea of a sweetener. So there wasn't a specific word that only meant honey. In English, we have all kinds of words that mean all kinds of things. and We have multiple words for, for one thing. In, you know, the Hebrews had like 100 words, um, and it meant a variety of things. That's, that's an understatement. They had more than that. But, but it's like, you know, they had limited vocabulary. So the word for sweetener was like, you know, orange pulp, 
honey, whatever brought sweet taste to something. And you weren't allowed to put that in an offering made on the altar. And you weren't allowed to put yeast on an offering made on the altar. Now, here's what scholars think is happening here. Okay. The, the offerings described so far in Leviticus 2 are very pure. It's flour. It's olive oil. When you put sweetener in something, it alters the DNA, so to speak, of the whole thing. Put a little bit of sweetener, it's, it's working its way through the whole thing. Put a little bit of yeast in something, it's working its way through the whole thing. Now, one of the things we see in Scripture is that yeast is often highly symbolic of sin. And how just a little bit can work its way through the whole thing. But it seems what God is doing here is He's training the Israelites. What you give to God needs to be pure. Even just a little bit of impurity or alteration will wreck the whole thing. You give your best to God. You give something pure to God. That's where his heart is. So that's the yeast and the honey in the, in the, in the offering there. And then he talks about doing everything with salt. And this is significant because you're talking about one of the most valuable commodities in that day and time. And in that day and time, if you were to make an extra special pact with somebody, so let's just say you get together with your neighbor and, you know, times are, you know, there's, there's crime and wild animals and things like that. And you say, listen, today we become a family and we treat each other's stuff as one. We don't do anything to steal or rob or harm, and we defend and protect just like it's our own family. You would sit down in such an important pact with bread and salt. And that became a salt covenant that you were making. And it was seen as the highest form of covenant. So when God says, bring salt, because this is a salt covenant, What he's really doing is saying, you know, this covenant that we have where I'm your God and you're my people and you worship only me, it's a big deal. And when you come to bring your memorial portion to remember that covenant that we have, that deal we have, you bring salt, just like you would at any other big deal covenant. So that's the idea of the salt covenant. Okay, so I think we've unpacked the the concept of the grain offering. Um, Let's talk about what it means for us today. Because we know through Scripture that God didn't delight in burnt offerings or in sacrifices or in grain offerings. It was ultimately to point us to Jesus and to help us to understand His teaching. So what God did through the grain offering was for centuries train the Israelites, train His people to be generous and to understand they were to give their best to God and their purest to God So that when Jesus came with a radical message, at least there was a context to start from. Because while 20 to 30% sounds like a lot, Jesus asks for more. And it goes far beyond money. Let's take a look at a few of the teachings of Jesus here and how he takes it to the next level. In the book of Luke, chapter 12, Starting at verse 29. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who have brought first fruits, who have brought grain offerings. 
who have sacrificed animals, who have not plowed the margins of their field. So they already understand this idea of generosity, about not holding on too tight to their things. And Jesus says, And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows what you need, or that you need them. But seek His kingdom, His way of life, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, His way of life. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Old Testament. Don't worry about the first 10 to 20% of your stuff. It belongs to God. Jesus teaching, don't worry about anything. Don't set your heart on your possessions. Sell them. Give them to the poor. Put it all, go all in, in God's kingdom. Worry only about his kingdom, only about heavenly things, nothing about worldly things. So he took that grain offering and made it seem pretty wimpy. Took that first fruits offering and it seemed like nothing compared to what Jesus was calling for. But I guarantee if you don't have centuries of thinking along those lines first, his message is going to be nuts. Now let's look at Matthew 23, 23. (coughs) Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Okay, these were the people who knew Scripture best. These were the religious leaders, the clergy of the day. He says, Woe to you, you bunch of hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, But you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former, you blind guides. He says, you tithe the spice in your spice rack. You got the ritual down, but it's not really about the ritual. You should do that, but it's really about giving God your all in things like justice and mercy. It's about laying down our self-centered things, whether it be our money, our stuff, our sense of self-satisfaction, we lay that down for God. That's what it's really about. So all the offering did was point to the day when Jesus would come and demand it all. One One final scripture, Luke 14 doesn't get any harsher than this one, but it also, there's just a sense of rightness and fulfillment in what Jesus is saying here. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And I love that because it's painting the picture, you know, all these people following after Jesus. He's a hero. He could have fame and fortune and everything he wants at this moment. And this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and that word means hold in distant second, does not hold in distant second his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, if you don't hold everything in a distant second, he cannot be my disciple, my follower. 
Anyone who does not carry his own cross, an instrument of death, and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're dying to everything. It's not just that first 10% you're dying to. You're dying to everything when you follow me. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? If he lays a foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees him will ridicule him. Suppose a king goes out to war. Does he not first count the troops against him? And if he doesn't have enough to beat those troops, he'll make peace. In the same way, any of you, anyone who does not give up everything he has, cannot be my disciple. Now look at this. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Jesus calls their attention back to that salt that they had included in every grain offering that they had ever made. That salt reminding them of the promise that they made with their God. And Jesus says, your promise with me, if it does not include your willingness to do whatever I ask, to go all out for the ways of God, and set all of your hopes and dreams aside and hold them in a distant second, then don't even make the salt covenant because it's not good for anything. Jesus took that grain offering with salt and fine flour, and he expanded it to be ourselves. And now we're offering ourselves in purity to be all out for God. I think that's what we can learn from this ritual that God began in the Old Testament in the second chapter of Leviticus. It all points to Jesus. It all points to the radical generosity that he brought and the radical life change that he demands. Now, I have a few points of application here. And the first is this. I I would invite you to consider God's salt covenant. (coughs) The Bible says that God's end of the deal is that he provides his son. And Jesus died on the cross... For all of our sins, they're all paid for. And through faith in that sacrifice, we enter the salt covenant with God. And the covenant is that because of that sacrifice, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are completely forgiven. You are guilt-free before God. Colossians 1.22 says that we are without blemish, without fault, without a single accusation, perfect in the presence of God because of Jesus. That's his end of the deal. Promised eternity with him. Heaven, paradise. That's God's end of the salt covenant. That's his end of the blood covenant that was made by Jesus' blood. Our end, then, is that we commit to following the teachings of Jesus to offering Him up everything that He may want from our lives and to holding nothing back. And I would invite some of you today to consider that salt covenant, all of you to consider that covenant that Jesus made. But some of you maybe have never actually sealed that deal. I'm going to give you the chance to do that in a minute. And actually, the band can come on up. Um, we're going to have a time of invitation. And, and what we do here is, if you're ready to take the step in that promise with God, um, the first step is simply saying, okay, I I believe. That's the first step. And if you're ready to take that first step, uh, you can just do that while we're singing, and then we'll talk with you about, you know, next steps for you and things like that. But you just come forward. I'll be down here in the front. 
Um, you just come forward during the song, and, um, and we'll, we'll take that first step together. I'll pray with you and talk with you more about that. And, um, and also, if you have anything that you need prayer for, just come forward while we sing these next couple of songs, and we'll pray with you down front. Second point of application is this, and it's a big deal. I would invite that some of you, you switched over to the other. I'll just say it. Um, um, I, I would want some of you to think about giving a percentage of your income to God's work. And I'm talking about maybe you have a neighbor who can't pay their bills. Maybe they're you know, out of work. Uh, maybe you know some single moms. Maybe there is like Love Inc., some organizations that you feel, yes, this is completely in alignment with the kingdom of God. But if you don't set aside a percentage of your income, which is God's description for the people back then, he's probably only going to get leftovers. Because I know at the end of the month, if I were to just give God what was left over, he ain't getting much, just like I ain't saving much, if there isn't a percentage set aside. It keeps you giving to God your first and your best. And that's a big step. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've already made that commitment, that might be something that takes your generosity to the next level, that kind of generous living. And then finally, uh, point of application from this, ask yourself while we sing these next songs and beyond, am I giving God my very best? Am I offering God a pure sacrifice, a living sacrifice? Am I giving God my best? Those are three points of application, or maybe God would lay something else on your heart, too, that you need to apply from this. Let's stand, and if you've made any kind of decision or needed any kind of prayer, just meet me down front during the music.